This episode is supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Dr. Daniel Davis is back for a conversation about a blog post he authored that sparked some thoughts in my mind. More on that in a minute. In case you missed the last time he was on the show, I've linked to his previous appearance in the show notes. Daniel has a background in architecture. He was the director of research at WeWork from 2015 to 2019. And he's currently a senior researcher at Hazel. On his website, which I've linked to in the show notes for this episode, he says he is particularly interested in two main themes in his work, how technology influences architecture and how architecture influences people. He also writes and gives talks about architecture, workplace design, design technology, and computational design. This episode centers around his latest blog post about CAD's boring future and why it's exciting. In the conversation, we get into the long-tailed distribution of architectural project topologies as a framework for his thesis, where he thinks, project-wise, the real opportunities for CAD software are, how this relates to architectural practice and employee expertise, aka super-users versus generalization, the development and professional application of horizontal versus vertical software across user types and markets, how tech startups in the architectural realm are approaching this challenge, including web versus desktop applications, and much more. So without further ado, I bring you this wonderful conversation that I had with Dr. Daniel Davis. All right, Daniel, welcome back. It's great hey. to see you again. Yeah, great to see you again. So you've recently written an article and that basically, you know, precipitated some sparks of of things in my brain, but I really wanted to get you back on the show to talk about this this idea. And you published it on your own blog. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The article is entitled CAD's Boring Future and Why It's Exciting. And uh, the whole premise is fantastic. I think there's particularly great insights. I know this article is making its rounds. People are really resonating with it. So maybe you can just provide a, a synopsis of the overall thesis and kind of the steps you took you take people through in the article. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess the sort of starting point for the article was, you know, I'd been to a lot of these technology conferences. I get invited to speak at them. And I think everyone's sort of expecting me when I go to something like that to be talking about the latest and greatest technology, right? Like they want me to talk about VR and they want me to talk about augmented reality and digital twins and all that. And all of that, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like some of it's interesting and some of it for sure is going to have a huge impact on the industry. But I also had this kind of sense that there's something else happening in the industry right now that's important in how we use CAD and how we use these design tools in our process. And that that's not kind of captured or necessarily seen when you only focus on the sort of technological side of technology. And so the article itself outlines basically like two main points about 
sort of changes in CAD that I see coming and then lists a couple of extra bonus items at the end. And CAD, can you define CAD as you, cause I know what, I know what you mean, but I think a lot of people get hung up on it's just 2d drafting and I know that's not what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was struggling actually in the article itself to work out what I would call this, but I think CAD is the right name. So I use yeah. CAD as like an umbrella term for all uses of computers to design architecture. Um, so not just thinking about like 2d AutoCAD, but encompassing within that things like BIM and parametric modeling and all of the different sort of flavors of ways that we use computers to design. So yeah, in the article, there's sort of two main points, I guess, about big sort of meta trends in the industry that I think is sort of coming through right now. And so the first one looks at what I called the shift from being in the long tail to focusing more on the fat middle. And the way that I sort of conceptually think about this is that you could basically take every building in the world and you could give it a score of how unique it is. So there's a lot of like McMansions, not unique at all. There's a whole bunch of like really unique museums and cultural projects that exist, like the Guggenheimba Bay, right? Super unique projects. And then there's a bunch of projects in the middle of that that are neither copy and paste, nor are they particularly unique. So think of something like the supermarket that I go to. It's not a copy and paste of any other supermarket, but if you walk into that supermarket, like it's familiar. Like you could, it's mm-hmm. like walking into a supermarket in New Zealand. Like it just it makes sense. Um, so there's these sort of projects in the middle that they follow this common common formula of how they're created, but they aren't exactly copy and paste. And they're not like really unique. And the sort of the premise of that point in the article is really to say that seems to have been the shift from focusing on projects that are really far down in the sort of uniqueness spectrum to being more in the fat middle. And so the way that I sort of describe it in the article is that 10 or 20 years ago, the sort of frontier of CAD and the frontier of computational design was really trying to push that, like trying to create the most unique project possible, sort of one-upping one another um, in the search for just ever more unique and sort of like celebratory um, Mm -hmm. designs, right? And that in the recent sort of years, you're seeing a whole bunch of, I think particularly startups and other companies shifting their focus into these projects that are in the middle. And so the example that I give in the article is companies like TestFit or Archistar or Spacemaker. These are all companies that if you've seen one of them, they kind of do something similar, but they allow you to take a, a site and generate a pro forma from it. Um, and they generate a building that kind of fits onto that site and then do that all kind of automatically. Right. And so the computational sophistication of those companies to be able to like generate a building sort of in one shot, just with a site boundary, absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. But I guess historically you wouldn't have found that kind of computational expertise really applied to these quite I'd say like mundane projects, right? Like there'll be things like parking buildings. There'll be like five-story apartment buildings that are like square, you know, like they're not, they're not what we would think of as landmark architecture, but they're getting this kind of love and attention that you'd only really find on these landmark projects historically. I think that kind of shift of computational design from being kind of used to push the boundaries of what was say geometrically possible 
to coming back towards this kind of more commodity architecture and working out how to make that practical is a really interesting trend that's underway at the moment in the industry. I think one of the things that this sparked for me was my experience working in a in a firm. They mostly do the kinds of projects you're talking about, but this took me back. I think this was a I think it was a Brian Ringley slide from an Autodesk University talk. And and he was couching all this under the idea of visual programming at the time, but I think it's it still applies totally to CAD. Things that people think visual programming is good at or computational design is like making weird shapes. <laughs> and then there's things it's actually good at. And he had a, a much longer list on that side. And and it was all very practical things. It was, yeah, you can make weird shapes, but it helps you make them fabricatable to, to address that point. But then it's also making architecture performative, making bad software tolerable. Like he, There was definitely some tongue-in-cheek things in there as well. But it was very much... It, 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 it took me back to the practice that I was involved in and and noticing that that is where the majority of the time is spent. It's on all this really practical stuff as far as hours being spent doing things. It makes sense to me that that is the target of this kind of software. And yet there is still this huge wall against the adoption to employ these things on projects that we spend all of our time it's like everybody's happy spending all this time doing these things and we're trying to find other weird ways to reduce the hours we spend on projects instead of looking for technology to help us do that yeah i think like also the the application of technology it gets into this really like narrow part of the business right like there's if you look at the entire sort of span of an architecture firm and the things that it does I mean, designing weird geometry is a very small part of what any firm does. And yet that's the thing that we put all this attention and expertise into. Well, that's what's on all the magazine covers, and that's the projects that get the awards. And, I mean, there's so many things that really, I think, are driven by architectural media of sorts to, to create that kind of attention there. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be interesting. I mean, I was reflecting on this a little bit, like, what we're going to make of those projects that were created, say, 10 or 20 years ago, you know? Like, I think each generation is kind of given a new architectural ingredient to work itself out with, you know? Like, yeah. some generations got the skyscraper and, like, like elevators and steel, and we got the computer, you know? And the yeah. thing that we chose to do with that, like, we could have used that to, like, make more sustainable buildings or make buildings more affordable or to make buildings more abundant or to make just buildings more pleasant to inhabit. And instead, the thing that we decided to do with it is build a curved wall. And it's like, I don't know. I'm <laughs> Thanks, not sure Patrick if, Schumacher. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if history is going to be too kind to some of those projects. Like, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's not to say that those projects aren't important. They are. They bring incredible importance. They're usually linked to culture, as you said before. They're, they get tons of traffic and tons of eyeballs and tons of interaction compared to this fat middle that you're talking about, which is the bread and butter of buildings without necessarily the capital A architecture part of it. But architects by training are really trained for that capital A architecture part, even though that's a very small percentage of buildings actually built for clients that exist in the world who can afford it. It's very exclusive. And not only that, but you're trained to do something 
you're trained for a role that is a very small percentage of people in firms. You can see the incentives are kind of misaligned for the, from the training aspect of it. And now we're talking about the actual bread and butter of the built environment, which is tons and tons of just quote unquote buildings. And I think what you're saying is like these tools allow us to make better buildings that more people can like it can enhance their life because that's what architecture does to the built environment. I think is that it does enhance the experience that people have and therefore the outcomes are there. I don't have the science behind this, but more productive, more participatory. There are there are things that it affects in people that that raises the quality of life and what they contribute back into society. And there, a lot of that is just left on the table by architects in the pursuit of capital A architecture, and that is ingrained starting in school and probably even before, and then glorified through all of the media and the magazines and what we see on the movie screens and you know those are the projects that that are in the mind's eye of architects all the time so there is definitely kind of an, a misalignment of incentives in in the whole chain yeah yeah i'd say that but maybe also the sort of interesting thing that's sort of getting picked up in this moment and maybe it's sort of what i was trying to or what is underlying that article is that i also think like young architects that are coming into the profession they're not looking at these capital A architecture practices and thinking that doing fantastic work. Like they're looking at these startups that are doing mm-hmm. sort of commodity architecture in that right. fat middle and thinking that the way that they're approaching that like problem space and the way that they're applying technology to those problems is itself really exciting. And I think you're seeing just a lot of like enthusiasm for this kind of fairly boring segment of architecture, which I think is fantastic, you know? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think there is a higher level of citizenship that's coming out of schools now than there used to be. I think the trouble that I see is squaring, this ha- This comes up a lot, but it's like these younger generations that do have this passion that you're talking about and, and are looking for ways to address the real challenges that we're seeing pop up in the world at the ginormous scales that they're popping up in. Have to wait for these older generations to leave so that they can get this stuff happening inside the practices. Because if you have the old mindset that I was just speaking about, the capital A training for those kinds of projects, like that, that is at odds with, with this kind of passion that you're talking about in many places, not everywhere. But. Yeah. And I think it's still an open question of where that exists within the industry, right? Like the examples that we've spoken about so far, like test fit, space maker, Archistar, they're not architecture firms. And the other example that I cited in the article was WeWork, which was doing these kind of commodity office spaces. And again, not operating within the traditional architectural model. And so whether that is compatible at all with the architectural model, I think still sort of an open question, you know? I think yeah, this gets, this uh, you, and I think you referenced it in your article, but the future of the professions. We're talking about commoditizing this kind of thing to remove this information f- from the sole possession of the old school gatekeepers. This basically is what's happening. And, and we see the shift with these tools that you're even talking about. I mean, TestFit is a perfect example. And I know uh, the guys at Hypar have done the same thing, which is a lot of architects aren't interested. 
So they go other places. I know that TestFit went to developers. They went to real estate developers because, I mean, when I was working in an architecture firm, there was a lot of people who like that shiny toy, but they're not willing to invest the time into it to see how it can work for them because we already, you know, in quotes, have a process. We already have a way to do this. Ian said the same thing about Hypar. We originally went to architects. We thought that was our audience. We didn't get a lot of interest. So we went to building product manufacturers. We went to contractors. We went to other places. And I think, you know, we, this really does speak to disruption theory, which is these toys are being developed and their clients aren't my clients. So I don't really, this is out of my my zone. This is out of my lane. I don't see what the interest there is because their clients are not my clients and it's not solving problems for the clients that I currently have. And I think there's two levels of clients there. I think there's actual clients who pay for buildings, but there's also people coming up inside the industry. Like those are, you could see those as clients of a different type. Their passion is not my passion because my passion is long and established and it took me a long time to get to where I am, and I'm not letting go of it anytime soon, right? So there's there's a lot of battling going on in here for mindshare, but also for where is the future of our profession going? <laughs> is it or is it even going to be here? Is it? It's not going to look anything like it is because of of this new these new this new passion, this new excitement, these new developments that are happening. That's very but high potential, I think. And it's going to be going to be interesting to see what happens. It's there. fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the, the thing about typical buildings is the artistry of the architect really in those kinds of projects is in the stuff that you don't see from the outside. You have a photo of the, the brownstone buildings, you know, like they do look, they, they don't particularly stand out, but it is the majority of, of the topology that you see when you're walking the streets of New York City. And you speak about test fit, right? And it's like, yeah, that for, for the most part, it's kind of the same building. It's just defined by the site constraints. Well, the site constraints is a huge, there's, there's always something there that has to be solved uniquely for the project. And that really is where the magic of the architect comes into play to actually get those ideas built with real brick and mortar. And I find that that's, that's something that isn't really seen by the public as far as uh, when you are walking the streets and you and you do see all these buildings that quote unquote look the same, but there's quite a bit of effort in there still. And it seems like that is where the brain power of the value of architecture really sits. Um, but it's still hard for our profession to notice that uh, as the the value. Um, and and so it's it's interesting for me to see the kind of high parse thesis of stop starting with a blank page. And yet every architect still wants to start with a blank page because every building is unique. Yeah. Or I even think in like those um, building generators, right? Like we've spoken of like TestFit and that, but each architecture firm themselves are like, no, 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 we're not going to like pay them to do this. We're going to build it ourselves in-house. Right. We're going to make our own software. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all, all generating their own configurator of some sorts, which right. isn't ever going to be as like powerful as what a team of like five or 10 people could do they're just focusing on it full time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, I mean, one of the diagrams you have is you, you talk about the, the difference between horizontal software and vertical software. 
the CAD packages that are out there are really addressing, not all of them, but the, the major ones are addressing a horizontal market. They're like Rhino you use in, as an example. It's, it's addressing, it's a general purpose modeler. It happens to do architecture. It also happens to do jewelry design. Congrats on your wedding. And, <laughs> and every, that, that was, that's a cool a little tie into the story. Because you give the example of the the designer of the engagement ring used Rhino, right? And then everybody in this audience, I'm sure, also has used Rhino to design buildings or patterns for a wall. Like it does everything, right? So maybe get into a little bit of about what your your idea is there about the difference between the horizontal application of software versus the vertical application. Sure. Yeah. So the I guess like the sort of little story leading into that was, yeah, we went and got this engagement ring made and we went to see like a jeweler to design it. And we talked to her about what we're sort of after in this ring and she took it away and she's like, okay, we'll make a mock-up of it, you know? And I don't know, probably like a week or two later, she sends through an email and I didn't quite know what the mock-up would be. I sort of imagined it would be a render or something, but it was like literally just a screenshot like out of um, Rhino. <laughs> She's like, you can read CAD. Yeah. 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 I almost, I was tempted to just ask for the file so I could like do it myself, but no, I thought leave it to the professionals. <laughs> wow. Such restraint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> but you know, like it's an odd thing, right? Like this ring, it, is such a tiny little object. It's so fine. And yet this is also the software that we're using to design a building with. And mm-hmm. I sort of, I'm curious about why that is. And I think one explanation for that is that most software or CAD software at the moment is this sort of horizontally orientated software. So rather than going after one particular vertical, like say single family housing, it tries to span across all of them. So you'll use something like Revit to design a skyscraper. You also use it to design a single family house. You also use it to design a stadium or an art gallery or whatever it is. And I think a lot of the sort of challenges that we have about using software, using CAD software, like it comes, like the root cause is actually the horizontal nature. So mm-hmm. when people complain about, say, Revit, doesn't have a feature to do such and such your rivet seems really clunky because it does this in this way just think about how many like use cases rivet has to accommodate right. like it has to accommodate a single practitioner sitting there knocking out like a house by themselves just to produce a drawing set for a builder and um, maybe the government and it also has to accommodate like a team of a hundred different architects and specialists working simultaneously on a skyscraper um, coordinating all sorts of information. And we expect that one piece of software to kind of accommodate all of that. And I think that's where a lot of the complexity arises. So you lack that sort of specificity of different features that tie into particular use cases because it's always better for Autodesk to build a feature that accommodates their entire user base rather than building something that's just for single family houses or something that's just then for Then why can't they fix the damn stair tool, Daniel? Like that doesn't... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, Not all I, projects need stairs. I don't know. <laughs> I guess, yeah. All those single level. It, it's it's interesting to think of it that way. And I think that you're, you're right because it's, it's one of those things where 
it's just architect it's an architecture tool and now you see them even getting outside of architecture and going to contractors and going to owners right they want to, everyone to use the same tool for all of the even future use cases uh, beyond the architect the architect's purpose is to create a set of documents for permitting and for building and then the contractor that's it's not the use that they actually needed it for if an architect were to ask, or if there was a different delivery model, like integrated project delivery or design build, it might have different use cases for the model itself during construction. An architect would be scared to death of that. There would be notes all over the place, CYA notes, do not measure off the model, do not do this, don't do that, don't look at these views, those ones aren't weren't for you to see. Now Autodesk is solely targeting them because they've built the feature set out for the architects, and now they're looking to gain additional market share in adjacent markets. It's interesting to see how the new players in the market are like just the slice, and or at least they start out that way. Test fit was multifamily housing. That's it. And it was like, well, we want it to do hospital, you know, medical office buildings. It's like, well, that's a different problem, right? We don't do that. Clifton would say that. Like, we don't do that yet. Like, we're taking notes down. We'll take your ideas, but... And we have seen them release a few other pieces. I think the latest one is storage units. They've done parking. They've done garages, like you said. They do garden apartments. But those are pretty specific topologies, and they're all linked to a financial model in a similar way. I mean, the math is different, but they're kind of solving the same problem in different ways, and they're not trying to solve everyone's problem. So I think it is interesting to watch how these new players kind of try to slot into these i think more vertical than than horizontal yeah well the, even test fit i feel like it's almost in the name right like it's in a specific mm-hmm. phase of the project mm-hmm. but there's also even more sort of extreme cases of software rather than like trying to fit into one phase of the project trying to span across like the entire life cycle of a project so the example that i use in the article is salt mine who People that haven't seen it, it's a really interesting software if you go to their website, but completely vertically integrated. So it works from sort of, it's for designing offices and only for designing the interior of offices. So not even the exterior of an office building, just Mm -hmm. like where furniture is basically. And it works like it has kind of tools in it for like the early stages of like strategy and briefing has tools for like the design process and then it comes down and even once a building's occupied, they have um, sort of workbenches for things like surveying employees and stuff. So you could have the entire sort of life cycle of a project encapsulated within this one piece of software. And it's vertical in the sense that it's going through all these different phases of the project and you're not going out into another piece of software when you're into kind of occupancy and need to survey people. You're staying within that kind of environment. But it's also not horizontal in the sense that it's only in this very, very narrow gap of interior office space. Um, so rather than going broad and horizontal, they're staying vertical in this one gap. Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. 
And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. Yeah, and another example you cite in there is uh, Kanoa, Hayworth, and Gensler have all developed these you know various tools to accomplish certain types of things. And the Hayworth one as an example is absolutely phenomenal it's a furniture company right like yeah it's phenomenal what they've what they've been able to pull off yeah that's another one that's worth checking out um i hadn't heard of it until like just recently and the software they've created so they're a furniture company again it's just software for laying out the interiors of offices but because it's focused on that it can do all these things that just be sort of impossible in say a rivet environment so you can Mm -hmm. do things like the early stages of a, a office project, you'd normally create a stacking diagram, which is like, this team's going to be on this floor, this team will be on this floor, and they'll take up 100 off desks, and this team will take up 50 desks, and you sort of stack the building to work out where each team is. And like co-designer by Hayworth, you make that stacking diagram, and as you're making the stacking diagram, it's sort of automatically laying out where each team is on each floor plan. And then at a later stage, when you go in to actually design the floors, you can make all those changes to the floor plans and as you're making the changes to the floor plans, it's reinforming that stacking diagram. So a stacking diagram is something that normally would have been done in Excel or Illustrator, sort of used once, discarded once the project got into Revit. Here it's got this kind of bi-directional link because there's that flow of data from different stages of the process. And and all to add value to what they bring to the project, right, is, which is populating your physical world with with furniture it's a really interesting strategy from their point of view yeah and i i wonder also there about like just the cost of making software like i speculate mm-hmm. a little bit on this in the article but like one of the reasons that, that companies went horizontal in say the 90s is that software was so incredibly expensive to make that mm-hmm. if you made a piece of software that could draw say walls and a roof and a floor it made sense to sell that software to everyone that could possibly want that functionality, whether they were designing a house or a skyscraper. But someone like Hayworth, like I'm sure they're putting money into this project, but it's also not like they've got Autodesk like money. Like, well, it's not like they're a software company, right? Yeah. So it's a side, side hustle for them, right? Right. Um, Or a marketing exercise. And so who knows, maybe they've got a dozen people working on this, but they've got a dozen people working on say, really sophisticated web viewer for designing office spaces, which I just, I don't think it would have been possible like 10 years ago. Um, So I think there's something that's happened sort of technologically and the way that we're creating software that's allowing us to make software cheaper. And because of that, 
maybe it takes some of the pressure off the software from having to go kind of big and horizontal to being able to just maybe occupy a small niche. It's interesting to think about it from that point of view. I, I don't know if it's cheaper to make. I it You say easier to make in, in the article. And I, I know software is expensive. Like I, the company I work with, we're, we're developing an app. It's It's a lot of money, like it is for sure. And that team is very specialized. But there are so many options nowadays. There, like there didn't used to be this many options. I know if you got a computer science degree when I went to school, like there was probably three options. Now it's, I don't know how many, you can't even count how many options there are to develop software, especially when it comes to the web, right? I mean, the web has just democratized the ability to like how many apps like we're using one right now it's completely running in the browser it's doing incredible things just to have this conversation with audio and video we see this with the likes of hypar right where it's it's all running in the browser you can access it from any device it's all hosted on the cloud and so it really has just kind of opened up the doors to software development way beyond the old coding environments that I think you're talking about that are the tools that are the stalwarts of our industry. But at the same time, there, there's still, there's a bunch of really old crafty code in there too, right? That's, it's been here for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I suspect one of the opportunities that sort of lies within the industry right now is although it's become easier, like all these platforms are built on their own sort of tech stack, you know, like, Hey, mm-hmm. with co-designer, isn't running the same thing behind the scenes as say Canola software or salt mine. And so all these companies have invented their own sort of like 2d viewer and they've invented their own ways to import and export data. And my suspicion is as much as like the vertical is important, there has to be also a layer or there's a potential for a layer to come in underneath all of that. That's like, this is going to be the API or the framework that you build a piece of software on for the web. Yeah. or build piece of software on for this really narrow vertical. And I look at what Hypar's doing, and I think that's sort of in that zone. Definitely Autodesk is looking at it with things like Forge, but I don't think they're there yet. You're seeing also Rhino sort of move into that space with like Rhino Compute and other like efforts in that sort of realm. I still don't think it's like fully, fully fleshed out. I feel like there will be something that emerges that occupies that space as well. Something else for firms to keep an eye on and track because as if it as if it weren't enough with all these new players coming out all the time, watching some take off and watching some fizzle out. And you know, it's interesting to think about it from that standpoint because there's also the software side of of these frameworks that you're talking about that nobody actually in the firms, not nobody, but people don't see those things and but they do exist and it is a hope that they would talk to each other, but there's no guarantee that they ever will. So I think a lot of times people feel like it's just not even worth betting on one thing. It's That's why I, so many architects are so late to react and adopt a lot of these things because they just want to wait for the one thing that really takes off. And that's what Revit did. Yeah. I think also like architecture firms themselves are horizontally orientated, right? So like yeah. most architecture firms aren't in one specific niche. Their right. niche is design and they'll do anything you ask them to do. So whether that's a hospital, whether that's all things to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it all. But that means that if part of their um, offering is to do say interior workplaces, maybe they'll be hesitant about using something like co-designer because they don't want their hundred interior designers using that to lay out offices. 
and then also have people doing hospital layouts using a completely different software package that aren't able to transfer the skills between projects or transfer information between projects. So I think that's going to be, if more of these sort of vertical solutions come up, I think it's going to be a definite pain point for these architecture firms. If there's a really dominant player in one vertical, like how do you integrate that into a firm that is like doing all these other verticals as well? That is a very real, real problem. And and it's it's not easy to solve for sure. I mean, the, the firm that I was at, we had four markets that we operated within and you know as much as possible the the thinking was yeah one tool to rule them all right because then you can train somebody and they could work in four different markets instead of just one specialized team so that that's not an easy problem to solve and i don't know how you get around that but it it is kind of interesting to think about it from a network effect also you know you've got You've got people who can share information on Teams. You've got people who can share information. I, I don't know. It, it it's a, it's just a, a very slippery place to operate, and I don't know what the answer is for firms. Yeah, well, one of the answers might be that firms themselves become more specialized, right? Like we spoke earlier about um, the future sure. of the professions. Mm-hmm. Like one of the predictions in that book is that professionals are going to get into these narrow and narrow specializations, and that there's so much kind of cost pressure on firms. It's difficult for them to take on all these different verticals when if they focused on just one vertical, they can get some sort of efficiency going. They can invest more in R&D. They can invest more in their processes. And through that, maybe have a higher likelihood of success, right? And if yeah. if more firms are kind of themselves, say, narrowing down and getting more vertical in their focus, then perhaps it makes sense that software sort of follows along with that and that there may be these vertical firms, there may be vertical software sort of alongside that. I agree with that. In in So there's two different, like there's the expertise and there's the generalization of, you know, that is constantly this balancing act in a lot of firms out there. And so I think what you're advocating for is teams or, it's like it's like a bunch of startups operating within a larger framework of a firm. Uh, what's interesting to me when you start thinking about that is if you do have a really specific expertise, does that need to be applied 100% of your time as an individual, right? And I, it makes me think of, I had a guest on the show, Dror Poleg, and he had an article written, he wrote an article called Rise of the 10X Class, which was... It's basically what you're talking about. It's like this high level of expertise that doesn't need to be utilized all the time. And basically firms are paying for people to, you know, a salary for a whole year to just be on call for that expertise when it seems to me like now with the pandemic, with remote work being as, you know, prolific as it is or ubiquitous as it is, it seems like people have more agency if they do have that expertise to apply it when necessary to those who are willing to pay for it when necessary. And it kind of changes the game when it comes to employment and careers. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, at an architecture firm, for sure, that would be like, if you had these kind of super individuals and the super software that's sort of going alongside it, it'd be pretty, pretty curious here. It would be. And I think like architecture firms are on one level, very willing to develop 
certain softwares, but on another level, really unwilling. Like they really want to buy something off the shelf that is provided to them that they could then just use. How does how does that square with this? Do you? Because what I'm what I was thinking when you were just saying that was the people who are the super experts are probably going to be involved in the development of that software hand in hand at the same time, not just a user of it. Like that mentality is is hard to find inside of architecture firms, unless you're a design technologist, maybe. But I think generally, as far as the masses of what who are employed at architecture firms, don't really operate or think like that. Yeah, maybe again, it's another example of how outside of the industry, there'll be interesting innovations, right? Like Canoa is a really good example of a company that is focusing on sort of sustainable office fit outs. And because there's not really a software that allows them, like an existing software that allows them to do that very specialized task, they're developing their own software that allows them to monitor things like mm. environmental credentials of all the furniture that they're putting into spaces and to monitor what happens to that furniture afterwards. So maybe it kind of ends up in that sort of lane where. Yeah. And it, it could go beyond an individual. It could be a team like that, that you bring in that has that deep expertise in that thing. And it's, it's consultant, basically it's, it's kind of gig economy based stuff, right? Where it's like, you bring them in when you need them, you get what you need. And an architect op- operates more as orchestrator of the whole picture to deliver the value to the client rather than trying to orchestrate and do all the work within it gets into there's a lot of weird stuff there right because architects with their license are in charge of overseeing the work and uh, if you're bringing in people to provide expertise are you necessarily overseeing it it gets really sticky really fast yeah the algorithm itself has some of the expertise built in like so, so what else in your article do you do you get into? I, you have a lightning round at the end where you're talking about um, UIs, you're talking about web versus desktop, things like that. Anything worth bringing up in that section? Yeah, that I mean, that section just it was when I wrote the article originally. I had a list of different things that I thought were going to be important and sort of cat in the future. Mm-hmm. And the two ideas about the fat metal and about verticals, they, for whatever reason, really spoke to me and I wrote the most about them. And then there's ones in the lightning round. I still think they're important, but they don't require quite as much kind of explanation. So the one on UI and AI, I mean, it's been a lot of discussion about sort of the importance of machine learning and how AI is going to really change the industry. And for sure, there's going to be interesting things that come out of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, we're not at a stage yet where these computers can like design the whole thing themselves, right? Which means that necessarily there has to be a human in that loop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think really the effectiveness of a lot of these algorithms isn't going to be like this algorithm that's 10% better than this other algorithm. It's really going to be in that interface between the human and the and the algorithm that in order for a person to be able to interface and use these tools and really extract value from them, have to understand what's going on. They have to be able to really manipulate and um, control what's going on. And I, I think although there's, there's been so much focus on sort of the technical and sophistication of those algorithms, I think just the 
the UI and the interface into them um, is maybe where a lot of the innovation lies at the moment. I think it's huge. Uh, There are applications that people are forced to use, and then there are applications that people want to use or even like to use. We can plainly see both sides of that. You can see Revit, right, which I think for the most part, there are very few percentage of people who actually like to use Revit. The most, most of the people like to complain about the various things that are wrong with it, you know, speaking back to your points about horizontality versus vertical, but, but just the interface itself is very, it's like, it's very deep. It, there's so many different ways to use it. There's so many different ways to look at it and set it up um, and make it more preferential or usable by a particular user. But for the most part, it's a, it's a sea of icons and keyboard shortcuts versus some of the other tools that have come out in the meantime you've got sketchup took the world the modeling world by storm why because of its simplicity and its ui a hundred percent like people just liked using it because it was fun to use it was easy to use tools like enscape and twin motion these are tools that i would be hard pressed to find somebody who does not like using those tools and and I think that you're right on when it comes to UI over AI. Like you still got to have tools that you just know how to use them. Like this is what the iPhone and the iPad were so good at when they came out. It was like I don't have to actually train how to use this. I can get results right now. It's the same thing when you hit the Enscape button in any one of these pieces of software. It just renders an image for you and you can move around and you can throw a new material on there and it just works. It's like Steve Jobs said, it's like you already know how to use it. When he released, when he showed the iPad for the first time, he's like, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but you already know how to use it. And I think that there is something huge about that for as far as adoption goes and uptake of these of these various pieces of software. Yeah. Yeah. And the example that I think of a lot is there's been a it's been a couple of like examples of companies like TestFit and Hyper have both released products where there's say a generative component to it where it's creating something. But they also allowed the designer to go back and manipulate it. And mm-hmm. I think it's such an important step in that process because if you don't have that stage where you can go back and manipulate it, it means that the algorithm has to get things 100% right first shot. Right. But as long as the designer can, can go back and make a little manipulation here and there and kind of pull it back into the, where it needs to be, the algorithm can be I don't know, 90% right and it's fine, you know? And so that focus on like you could either work on making the algorithm go from like 90% correctness to 100% correctness which is a huge like yeah, leap in right, intelligence right or you can find this sort of accommodation within the interface that allows the designer to go back and make these changes and gives that sort of flexibility to allow for mistakes to be corrected yeah yeah so okay so high par and test fit have two different stances when it comes to web over desktop one is an application that runs on your hardware that you know it's a it's an os specific app and then there's hypar running in the web and not to say that these are even competing against each other necessarily but just different takes on an approach so so what do you have to say about the web over the desktop here so i feel like in the long term the web just has to win out and for a long time, we were talking about, you know, I don't know, even when the, the MacBook Pros came out recently and they're like, oh, these computers are so fast, like everyone on CAD is going to be using them to like design stuff. And it's like most people on CAD, they're not actually doing very sophisticated stuff. They're right. like 
looking yeah. at 2D plans and entering data. I actually think that sort of desktop performance maybe isn't quite as necessary as we often think it is. And I think particularly in these environments where there's things like really specific applications, like um, say office interior layouts, you don't need a big kind of complicated 3D model to do all that. It's fine for it to be in 2D. Right. And the web is like a perfect interface for having a lot of data, manipulating all of that data and, allowing people access into that collaboratively. And we're seeing that in other industries with things like Figma, um, taking on Illustrator, and mm-hmm. it seems just inevitable that that will come for architecture. Uh, I also think it sort of goes back to maybe that earlier point about the platform. Like if you're building a piece of software right now, you know, you could prototype something and say Rhino pretty easily, right? But if you're trying to prototype something for the web, it's not really like you're almost starting from scratch, like from real fundamentals, like there's WebGL and there's a couple of like wrappers for that, but you're kind of like right down in the basics again of kind of getting all that linked up and set up. And so I think something like Hyper potentially helps, helps enable that and helps realize that. Yeah, for sure. It is interesting to think about like the way that Figma, because of the democratization of, the tools to be available any time is i mean the the great equalizer here is is the the connection to the internet it's not the internet itself and it's not your magic window into it right it's just that connection between the two and what's interesting about those kinds of tools is how much you can do with them in a web browser it's absolutely incredible and anybody can do it like that that is really an amazing thing. And I, so I, I tend to agree with you that the web has to win out. And I'm sure that there has been many debates at every company about that. But for a, an end user who might not be you, you know, you as a designer, that's one thing. As an end user, not needing a specialized piece of software to see the output that you've produced and for it to live somewhere that isn't on your hard drive, is those are game changers. And we kind of have to act like that as a profession, that those are realities that people come, like clients expect those kinds of things. When it comes to how am I going to view this BIM information, I <laughs> BIM information is a little bit redundant, right? But it's, um, but how am I going to view that? How am I going to access that? How am I going to use it? it? It can't be, it can't be Revit. I'm using lots of podcasting air quotes here, but like when it comes to a client, Firms can barely keep the licensing figured out on, on products like that, let alone the installations and the deployments and the plugins and the scripts and it, the file. Like, there's just so many things going on there. The client could never deal with that. So, how are they going to access that? And that's that to me is really where we feel it now in the architectural profession that client. The only reason we move forward is because clients are demanding certain things. That I think this is going to be a huge one of those. Access and ownership of that data after the fact is going to be a huge driver. Absolutely. And I mentioned there's going to be some pretty stressed out IT departments, right? Like they always have these computers locked down, so you can't get a license for it. You got to go to them. I mean, if you can just log on to a website and get all that and don't have to go to IT to request access to a particular piece of software. Again, I think there'll be these sort of sneaky ways for software to work its way into firms um, bypassing all that need to be installed and stuff like that. Yeah, interesting. I mean, when we were in school, it was 
uh, pirated versions of Photoshop and AutoCAD or whatever floating around. And the companies knew full well that, that it was to their benefit for that to happen. And now you don't, there is no installation process, right? It's just pull up the website and just go to it and log in with your Google sign on and and that's it. You're in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So another point you have here made to measure over mass manufactured. Yeah. So this one, um, it's the final point in the article. And I guess I've been seeing like a bunch of startups at the moment talking about like the in the manufacturing space and they're talking about how they're going to make architecture, like they make cars and how they make rockets and planes and all of that. And it's been a meme that's been in the architectural world for probably since we started making cars, right? Like (laughs) we're going to do it in a factory like that. And I don't know. I was just thinking like, why is it that we use the manufacture of those objects as the thing to hold up? Like, why isn't it phones? Why isn't it clothing? Why isn't it food? Like, why is it that we try and emulate what's happening in the automotive industry? I actually think the automotive industry is kind of a bad precedent for architecture and that cars themselves are pretty much just a standard thing that fits in a standard site. Like it has to be within a certain size on, on the road and there's not the sort of constraints that you have in architecture where going back to the sort of fat metal that it's not copy and pasted buildings. Every building necessarily has to adjust a little bit to the site or has to adjust to some of the like government regulations in that local area or has to adjust to the client. And so I think one example of an industry that's taken that on in an interesting way is the fashion industry. And so the fashion industry is interesting, particularly like when you think about like a suit or something. Like a mm. hundred years ago, if you were to get a suit, like every suit was a bespoke made to measure item of clothing. And then the Industrial Revolution happened. You had a whole bunch of machines making clothing. And it works for some things like t shirts and hoodies and all of that. And for things like suits, it can be okay if you're sort of in the normal range of body types that they use for a suit but it also doesn't work quite as well because the body itself is different right and what's interesting is in the last i don't know probably 10 years or so with the rise of the internet there's been a whole bunch of companies that have started that offer kind of made to measure clothing that's available online right so you take your measurements you put it into the website and they they'll make you something that's not 100% bespoke, like you've gone to a tailor. It's not quite in that zone where you've brought something off the rack. It's in that sort of middle zone of it's sort of been made to adjust to you a little bit, but it still follows a really common formula. I think that is just like a model for how we think about architecture is quite, quite compelling that there is a formula maybe for the underlying building and how it gets put together and a sort of process for it, but that it can be sort of parametrically adjusted a little bit to fit into the site and to fit just right rather than being either a module that you drop on site like a shipping container that doesn't fit at all or something that's 100% bespoke and doesn't have that sort of scale of efficiency. And then there's layers on top of that. There's the configurators that will take the thing and allow the end user to customize it further with their own tastes like nike's done with their id collection right you can go in and to me there there's multiple levels to that there's kind of that base level that you're talking about that makes it work where it needs to work and then there's another layer of 
I don't want to call it necessarily design, but like optioneering of on top of that, just what, what do I want to make this mine? And that seems like another interesting approach and layer. I, fashion is a, is a great example. I was listening recently about to a, to a podcast called Spark, and it comes out of Canada. And it talked. They were talking about the fashion industry, and they were talking about how much waste there is, and how they're kind of trying to address that. I, I think that the the stat was like in the fifties, uh, a woman had like five pieces of clothing, five articles of clothing. And now it's like the average is like 60. And there's so much churn and waste. And there's been a bunch of startups that have come out to address that by making those slightly used pieces of clothing available to secondary and tertiary markets. And it seemed like, I think this is also kind of where someone like Kanoa is starting to fit in, right? They're saying like, the answer is not buying new things all the time. And I know that that would be for a very small number of people in the architecture world anyway. But when it comes to existing building stock, we're now talking about this layer of application on top of the existing bones to make it fit your organization as well. And so I think these do really dovetail and, and fit together. This this made-to-measure thing has different levels of application to it. I think it's it was definitely worth pointing out. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about the like adaptive reuse. I hadn't considered that, I guess, when I was writing this, but I think it's a super, super relevant point. But the other thing you say there, where it's like about the number of clothes, I also yeah. think about that with houses, right? Like what, like it'd be wasteful, but what an abundance it would be to have an oversupply of houses because yeah. houses were so plentiful and that we're able to make them so quickly. Right. Absolutely. And it, and that's a huge need right there. Well, it is a boring future. <laughs> yeah. That's the verdict. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this today. It was a wonderful article. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And again, congratulations on the wedding and your move back to New York City. This is, this is a fantastic development and I hope we get to see each other soon. Cool. Well, thanks for having me back. And yeah, great to talk to you about this. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out. And of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>